um, Walgreens Pharmacy. That's an American brand pharmacy. And according to the Chicago Tribune, a security video shows that he walked up to this ATM machine inside this pharmacy, and he set his drink on the floor and did his banking. And then he leaned over, he picked up his drink, and he kind of did a double take of what he saw on the floor. There was this bag from the Chase Bank, the logo of the Chase Bank on it. It was a sack of money, cash and checks. So the security video shows that he pauses for a moment, he stares at it for a long time, and then he kind of looks around. Left, right, scanning what's around him. And then he picks up the bag and he slips out the door. So the man gets to his car and he drives off and the bag contained over $17,000. Now, by the time he made it to home, which is about 45 minutes away, he had time to weigh what he had done and he kind of figured, I bet you I'm on video camera. (laughs) And so he drives back into town and decides he's going to turn the money in. But unfortunately, he also decided to lie about where he found the money. And so he walks into a Chase bank in Rolling Meadows and said that he had found this bag of money in the mall, which of course is not true. He picked it up at the pharmacy. So the story hit the news. And the man has featured the newspapers all over the place. In fact, over the world. And he even gave interviews over the radio, TV station. And he was hailed as a hero on websites. And he received gift baskets and, and token gifts from strangers. He was an object of romantic inquiries. And repeatedly asked about this reward. And he even drew high praise from a nun for being so honest about what he had found. Well, of course, you know, it didn't take long to learn. And the FBI got involved. They brought him in for an investigation. And they had the video footage. And they said, hey, look, tell us the truth now. What really happened? Well, he was fined. Well, he confessed. He was fined $500 for making a false report. But far worse, of course, was the embarrassment he had to suffer when the whole world was peering into his private world, right? And he did admit, when he saw that bag of money, he thought to himself, hmm, I could do a whole lot with that dough, right? Well, in Matthew chapter 19, 16 to 22, we learn about a man who didn't need to steal anything because he was already wealthy. But upon closer inspection, he has more in common with this man who stole the bag of money than we might think. So let's find out why this is the case, but let me listen, let me read to you the story from Matthew chapter 19, 16 to 22. I didn't even bring my Bible with me, so I'm going to read it right off the screen. So here it goes. Then just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? 
Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus, Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. There are a few hot-button topics that can make any conversation go bad in a real hurry. Uh, Some of these topics might include religion, health, politics, maybe death. But there was a survey that went out by Wells and Fargo, and there was a clear winner in their survey of what would be the hottest topic to talk about. That topic, by a landslide, was money. They say it's the hardest conversation to have. 44% of Americans, and I assume us Canadians are really no different from the Americans in that sense, they point to personal finances as the most challenging chat anyone could possibly have. As in, how dare you talk to me about my finances? How dare you tell me how to spend or how to save or whatever? That is my hard-earned cash, and you can't touch it. At least you can't touch how I deal with my money. But this is precisely what Jesus does. He talks about money with this man. Now keep in mind, this story comes immediately after Jesus prayed for the little children. And he said, don't hinder these little children, for the kingdom of God belongs to one such as this. And then Matthew 18, our text from last Sunday, Jesus said, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So we'll return to that thought, but that's within the context of this story. So here's a man. He comes up to Jesus Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, in verse 22, we learn that he is a young, wealthy man. Luke 18 said that he's also a ruler. So, even though he's young, he already has wealth. He already has a certain amount of power and influence. And back in those days, it generally kind of went hand in hand. Some say that he was maybe a Pharisee. Hard to argue against that. Now, in the culture of that day, uh, wealth was regarded as a sign of blessing from God. And in fact, religious teachers were expected to be at least moderately wealthy to show, in a sense, that God has blessed them. Now, of course, Jesus and his disciples neither had wealth nor much status. 
And so Jesus and his disciples are conspicuously very different from the in-people of their day. But here Jesus is encountering one of these so-called in-people. So seemingly successful, he needs to ask Jesus this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Or to put it a different way, is there a good deed I can do that will guarantee my inheritance in the age to come? Now, I don't doubt his sincerity about his concern for eternal life, but his words reflect the common assumption that attaining eternal life is found in what you must do rather than who you are with God. So the basic Jewish answer to a question of this, of who inherits eternal life, really has something to do with keeping the Jewish law and the commands that God gave to Moses. And every Jew knew that these three, these commands, um, you know, they knew the commands, and they should follow the commands, but every serious-minded Jew, like this young man, basically had some different opinions of how you should interpret the law, right? How you should apply the law. And so this is probably in his mind. The Pharisees has their, had their opinions of how you should interpret the law. The Essenes has their interpretation of how you should follow the law, and so on and so forth. And so the question is now for Jesus. Jesus, how do you see it? How do you attain eternal life. Now, he clearly respects Jesus because he calls him a rabbi, a teacher. But this man is rather fixed on doing a certain thing, and a certain thing that perhaps would earn God's favor. He doesn't offer up any details of his own because he's probably uncertain himself. Maybe he's thinking that, you know, a certain act for charity will push him over the top, so to speak. Get him into the land beyond. Now, Jesus answered his question with a question of his own, which is a very Jesus thing to do, right? So Jesus asked, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is basically picking up the young man's use of the word good. And he explores the meaning of this word with this man. And so he says to them, to the man, there is only one who is good. So Jesus is clearly referring to the goodness of God. In other words, goodness is not found in your own human resources or your actions. It's only found in God's character. He is good, and goodness is found in him, in his character, and in his commands. So this good deed he was proposing was basically a human quality rather than about God's goodness. So from his culture's point of view, I mean, he looked like a successful person. He looked like a blessed person. He was well-to-do, he was religious with a seemingly good reputation, but Jesus is questioning his understanding of goodness. But not only does Jesus challenge him about his goodness or his motive, Jesus also says, if you want to enter life, keep the commands. 
keep the commands. Now, maybe to our ears, it may sound like Jesus is saying eternal life is earned by keeping the commands, but of course, you understand that's not what Jesus means. As theologian D.A. Carson says, the entire debate has been bedeviled, bedeviled by a false splits between grace and obedience to God's will. So Paul famously said, and this is the passage we know well in Ephesians 2.8, for it has been grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not for yourself, of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. So salvation is not earned by good deeds. But Paul also says that wrongdoers can't inherit the kingdom of God. John said it in this way, John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, you keep my commands. So following Jesus is about putting our faith and trust in his love and his grace like a child, right? It's this surrender. And then what happens when we surrender, God gives us his presence, his Holy Spirit, who empowers us so that we can obey his commands. It makes no sense to say we believe and love God and not obey his commands. Part of following God is obeying him. So this is what Jesus is getting at. Keep my commands. If you want to follow me, follow God honestly, then you keep my commands. Well, this man wants to question Jesus. What commands? What commands? Well, Jesus gives him a straight-up answer. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Because Jesus quotes only commands five to nine of the Ten Commandments, okay? And, of course, the Ten Commandments are first found in Exodus chapter 20. But he also adds the one large command that covers them all, love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19.18. So a few observations here. Commands five to nine, the one Jesus quotes, are primarily concerned about observable actions. And therefore, it's actually relatively easy to check one's performance against them. Okay? For example, most of us can say, I hope all of us can say, I have never murdered anyone. Right? Can you check that off your box quite quickly? Yeah, okay, you can, right? I've never stabbed anyone, never gunned someone down. Of course, Jesus takes it a little deeper, but we're not going to get into that right now. Okay? But on the face of it, it's a command, you know, it's clear. You've done it or you haven't done it. So when the young man heard Jesus' quotes from the commands, five to nine of the ten, he quickly says, oh yeah, I've kept them all. I've done it. But then he feels the need to ask this question. What do I still lack? He seems to be aware that there's something lacking in his life, right? He says, yes, I've kept the commands, but what do I still lack? What else do I do? 
This is where we need to take notice of the command that Jesus does not say. These observable commands all have to do, that's number five to, five to nine, all have to do with how you relate to other people. But what command does Jesus leave out of the relational commands? Well, of course, he leaves out the tenth command. And what's the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. Okay? I've shortened it there, but you get the point, right? Don't covet your neighbor's wife, animals, possessions, whatever. Don't covet. Now, this man knows his Bible, right? I know he knows his Bible. And for sure he knows the Ten Commandments. And I am sure that when Jesus left out the Tenth Commandment, he knew that Jesus was on to him. I think so. Jesus didn't include the Tenth Commandment because his conscience was bothering him. You see, on the outside, he hasn't murdered anyone. He'd never committed adultery. He's probably never stolen from anyone. He's never given false testimony. I mean, let's call him a good church boy. He's a good church boy. But coveting isn't a command that you can easily tick off because it's hidden from view. It's about desire and an attitude of of the heart. It does not have an external performance to it necessarily. It is about one's heart and one's attitude. Coveting is about selfish desire. To have what doesn't belong to you. And it's not always easy to detect. And Jesus appears to leave this one out, one command out, because this young man is enslaved to his possessions. Has he stolen anything? Well, we don't know for sure, but likely not. He probably has made an honest living. He's probably a hard worker. He probably has a good reputation. But and yet, Jesus knows that he is enslaved to his possessions, meaning he just wants a little bit more. Never quite satisfied. That's coveting. Never satisfied. So Bible commentator R.T. France says this, There is much wealth in his house, but leanness in his soul. He is rich, but he is not rich toward God. His love for money is ruining his inner life, even though he appears to perform morally well on the outside, as far as others can observe. But sadly, this man is far away from entrance into the kingdom of God. So, Jesus' answer. This is why Jesus tells the man this advice. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And we need to see that all 
together. Now, first of all, the word perfect doesn't mean sinless perfection. Uh, You and I know that perfection on this side of heaven is impossible. Okay? So it doesn't mean sinless perfection. Rather, the, the word is about being undivided. It means being pure. This man thinks he can have one foot in the kingdom of God and the other foot in wealth. But you do horrible splits doing stuff like that. And it doesn't work. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. It's a human impossibility. Now, Jesus told this man to sell all his possessions, but he hasn't told all of us to sell our possessions. I think Jesus said these words particularly for this man because this was his issue. This was precisely his issue. And he needed to hear it because his possessions were possessing him. But the real focus and thrust of Jesus' desire for each of us is to follow him with undivided freedom. Right? See, Jesus, when Jesus asks you to follow him, he wants you to be free to follow him. And we're not free to follow him if we have one foot somewhere else. So he says, pull up that foot from your old gods and idols. And for this man, it happened to be the love of money and possessions. Jesus sensed that for this young man, riches have become his idol. That it could ruin him. In fact, it could kill him. Unless he renounced his attachment to coveting more. Now, in Jesus' day, there actually were not a very lot of wealthy people. Today, we have far more wealthy people. Back in those days, most people were actually poor. And so the rich people kind of stood out. And so it's not hard to, to, for Jesus to identify this man. Most were poor in that, in that day. However, let's not say that just because you're poor doesn't mean you're good-hearted. Doesn't mean you have issues with not being divided. This word is actually for all of us, right? Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you consider yourself middle class, which didn't even exist back in Jesus' day. It exists today, of course. But this is something that all of us must hear. Everyone must be careful with the love of money. All of us us need to examine our own hearts to see what might be holding us back. It may not be money, but money is high on the list because it's one of the greatest temptations known to man. What's holding us back, perhaps, from truly following Jesus? So, following Jesus must be done with a whole undivided heart. Freedom is what Jesus wants for us. Freedom to follow him. There is so much greater joy, so much greater blessings when we're free to follow Jesus, not tangled up by other things. You know, they say that if you want to catch a monkey, not that that's something you think about 
every day. But they say that if you want to catch a monkey, you need a jar which the monkey can just slip his open paw into with his fingers wide open. And then what you do is you put some fruit or something that he loves inside this jar, and then you put the jar out. And you tempt the monkey with the fruit, and where he'll likely find it. Then the monkey will put his hand into the jar. He'll grab, his, grab the fruit or the thing he loves, and of course, his fist is going to become like that. But in order to pull his hand out, you have to what? Free your hand. You've got to let go of it. But as long as you possess that fruit, if you're a monkey, right, you'll never let, you'll never be free. You'll never be free. So, this young, rich ruler was really like this monkey. His hand is inside the jar. He is clutching his possessions so tightly, he cannot let go. He will not let go. He is not free to follow Jesus yet. He is such a tight grip on his possessions, he cannot be free. He could not join the kingdom of God's movement led by Jesus. God's kingdom is about Jesus' saving rule to transform everything, transform the heart of mankind, bringing in a whole new creation and brand new life, living under the loving reign of Jesus. But it's a life where you break free from your past sins and evil that causes decay and death itself. But under Jesus, it will be done away with, God says, right? We need to be free to follow Jesus. So Jesus basically gives really a very simple answer to this man. It was not a complex legal answer that he might have expected. That's the kind of answer you get from the Pharisees of that day. That's the kind of answers you get from people who have religious debates It's a very simple one. Give up the false security of possessions and become like a helpless child and follow Jesus. It's that simple. Give it up. Surrender yourself to me like a helpless child, knowing that you so need the Lord and follow me. Give up those old idols, gods, which you think, we think, give us security And follow Jesus instead. So let me conclude with a few things to consider here. Uh, First of all, is one warning, and then three purposes for wealth. Because wealth in itself is actually good, and it's a gift from God. So, first of all, let's think about the warning. Well, we've already said this. Watch out for the deceitfulness of wealth. You probably recognize that in the parable of the sower, uh, Jesus said that the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes out the word of God. So it's like the thorns. The thorns will choke out anything that's good. The young ruler believed that God had blessed them. Baba scholar Kenneth Bailey said that 
It is the wealthy in that day who actually built the synagogues. They actually gave to the orphans and to the poor and funded many worthwhile projects. If anyone inherited eternal life, it would have been them. That's one perspective, right? But that is why it was hard for the wealthy to hear Jesus' gospel message, precisely because they did lots of good things. Okay? They did lots of good things. And this young Pharisee is probably thinking, what is the one more thing that I could do to get into eternal life? And so they had a hard time processing Jesus' gospel message of becoming a helpless child and follow Jesus. Their generosity actually hid their covetousness. At least that's the case for this rich young ruler. Their generous reputations disguised their divided heart. In other words, I am a good person. I do good things. Come on. I'm sure I'm close to eternal life. Just because you give lots and you give to worthy causes doesn't mean your heart isn't, un, isn't divided. Because it very well could be. And I think that's the sneaky deceitfulness of wealth for a rich person. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 9-11, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and endurance, and gentleness. That's where our heart should lie. Finally, um, God gives us wealth for several purposes. And this is in this order. So the first ones are the priority. Number one, God gives you wealth to advance God's kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6, Jesus warns us against storing up treasures on earth and not to fret and worry about our needs because when you trust God and invest in his kingdom and righteousness, he's going to provide for you. He's going to provide the wealth. But the number one reason God gives us wealth is for the sake of the kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. When we, are, when we live our lives for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and when we trust him, he will provide for us. Secondly, God gives you wealth to help and bless others. 
2 Timothy 6.18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. God is generous to us so that we can be generous with the body of Christ. And for those who have needs in society, following Jesus always comes first, right? Be undivided. But what flows out of that life of following Jesus is one of righteousness. It is a heart of generosity from what God gives to you. So God gives you wealth, not so that you can selfishly accumulate more, but actually God gives you wealth, and you're like his steward, right? You are like a a ruler in a sense, who takes responsibility for all the gifts that God gives to you, and you see God say, Lord, how can I use this to bless people? How can I use this to further your kingdom? And so he puts you into this position of blessing those in need. But when money stops becoming, when money stops being an idol or a desire, God gives you the freedom to give in a generous way. So, You know, we have to understand that money is an absolute necessity in life. Money is a blessing from God. Money is something that God gives to us, right? It's part of God's wonderful creation. And yet he he bestows it on us to be a blessing to other people. And finally, very quickly, God gives us wealth to enjoy. Now, you don't hear that very many times, do you? Right? And I think we do need to hear that because some people uh, grow up without hearing this. There is nothing wrong with enjoying the wealth that God gives you. Obviously, number one and number two are the top priorities. But we have to remember since creation, God gave us his creation, his gifts for us to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 And it's given in whole context here. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. Well, there it is, right? So do the other stuff, right? But don't forget... God gives you things so that you enjoy this life. Did you know that the other side, you know, the new heaven and earth, when Jesus returns again, there will still be things. Does that make sense? It's going to be a material world with all kinds of blessings, you know, mountains and oceans and things to play with. God is never against possessions and things. That is never the point at all, right? So, Enjoy what God gives you. But when we have it reversed, right? When we don't serve God, when we don't bless others, and it's all about you, then we have things backwards, probably like this rich man. So with the wealth that God gives you, pursue first God's interest and then people's interests then God will shower you with many gifts to enjoy along the way.
But the heart, I think, of this story is really about discipleship. Jesus desires all of us to follow him with undivided freedom, with undivided hearts. I think that's the spirit of this story. Well, let's pray. Lord, as we have talked about, personal finances can be a very hot topic. And yet, you, Lord, um, brought it up with this young man because you wanted to bring him freedom, freedom to follow you. Uh, Lord, if you have helped us this morning to put a finger on our heart of something that's holding back, holding us back, I pray that we would do business with you, that we would not ignore the thought, the conviction, that feeling, and speak to you, deal with it, confess our sins, and figure out through your grace and power how to follow you in true freedom and in the empowerment of your grace, Lord. Lord, none of us are free from the temptations of the love of money. None of us are. It may be another issue, but we are not free from this. And so, Lord, we call out for your grace. We call out for your power and for your help to defeat these temptations. You asked us to seek you in these moments of temptation. So we ask you, we ask for your help and for your victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's uh, return to worshiping the Lord.